This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, you're listening to Live from Ukraine, a highly experimental podcast featuring Ukrainian voices recorded on Twitter Spaces before a live audience. Our guest today is Anastasia Lapatina of the Kiev Independent. Uh, she is, uh, among other things, one of the co-hosts of the new podcast, Did the War End?, which uh, I have listened to the first episode of. Um, I'm a little behind on my podcast queue, uh, so I haven't listened to the subsequent couple episodes yet. But the first episode is really spectacular, and I, I could not recommend it more highly. Um, uh, so, Naskia, welcome uh, to Live from you. Thank you so much for having me. Also, thank you so much for taking note of how my name is pronounced. You're probably among the, I don't know, three or four Westerners I've ever met in my life who pronounced it correctly. Uh, how, how, <laughs> so, thank how do you. people usually pronounce it? Oh, it's it's a bunch of different ways. Well, mainly, you know, when I when I when I moved abroad for education, I had a phase when I, I thought that you know my name, which is Anastasia or Nastya for short, that's you know what most Ukrainians call me in my family. I just thought that that's you know too difficult because it's not a thing that exists in the West, like it's not a common name. So I just made that Anna, you know Anastasia or Anna. But I hate it so much now. There's a long I can have a long discussion of why, but people would usually say Anastasia or in France they do Anastasia, which is just ugh. Uh, and then uh, Anna, Anna, a variety of things. None of those are my actual name. Gotcha. So thank you. So so let's use this opportunity actually to talk about the double I uh, when people transliterate Ukrainian into English. Um, I have. I've kind of figured out and I want to check whether I'm right um, and use this as an educational opportunity for me as well as others, that when you see a double I, as in Anastasia, uh, it will almost always get an emphasis and it's a kind of a long E sound. Is, is, that, is that right or is, it a, or, or is that just an inference that I made that's right in this case, but not right in general? Yeah, I think that's actually only the case with my name, um, because um, so basically the, I have the double I because there is a sort of ya sound at the end. And to make that ya sound, you put either I-A or Y-A. I'm not actually sure what the difference is there, but I think there's also some sort of linguistic Ukrainian shebang. But this is what it is in my passport, so that's why I use it. But, you know, the, the double I is because first there is an E sound, so that's the usual way I pronounced and then there's, there also needs to be a yeah sound, and for that you do an IA. But yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit complicated. Gotcha. Okay. I, uh, so, uh, so I got the right answer for the wrong reason. Uh, sort of. but, I'll, but I'll stick with it. Um, all right. Uh, uh, thank you for joining us today. I want to start where I start uh, uh, all of these conversations, uh, which also, by coincidence, happens to be the subject of first episode, which is. Uh, what happened to you and your experience on February 24th? Uh, you were a working journalist uh, uh, for the Kiev Independent, uh, and then the full-scale invasion happens. What what happened to you, and how did your life change? Well, it changed pretty radically, of course, for as for most of us. But um, sort of an interesting thing for me is that while many people 
um, perhaps maybe not journalists necessarily, but Ukrainians in general, maybe moved away from moved away from Ukraine because you know for safety reasons. I actually moved back <laughs> from because I was in Europe. I was in France at the time, and actually I wasn't even actively working for Kiev at the time. I mean, I was still a part of the team, but I sort of because I went to France. Um, to continue my education um, in person at Sinspo, I wanted to take sort of like a little, you know, break slash sabbatical kind of thing where I was sort of freelancer. So if I wanted to write, I could, I could pitch something, write it, but I, I didn't have any day to day or week by week kind of responsibilities. So at the time, I wasn't even like a full time staff member. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, on the 24th, of, of course, we, you know, the team, I stayed in touch with everyone. I closely followed the events, etc. And, well, first of all, thank you so much for your amazing words about our podcast. It means a lot to us. And if, if anyone is interested, you guys should go listen and check it out on my page. Uh, we really enjoy making it. But on the February 24th, um, it, was, it was really bizarre, especially because I wasn't there, right? So I was in Europe and I was watching all this unfold in line, um, which I hated because sort of paradoxically, um, at the time of, of such a crisis and such traumatic events, You'd think that maybe you'd want to be somewhere safe, but actually, in reality, the, the, the only thing you want is to be there with your people and be there with your land and, you know, with your country. And it seems like the most wrong thing in the world to not be there. And I, I even remember, you know, walking through Paris a few days after the war began, and I, I, I really, like, hated Paris at the time, even though I, I love it now. It's one of the cities in the world for me, and I want to, you know, go back and live there for a bit. But at that time, I just hated everything around me that wasn't even remotely Ukrainian. Like I could barely talk to anyone who wasn't Ukrainian. It just didn't make sense to me. So basically, you know, what happened, I, there was, there was a speech that Putin was giving and I stayed up uh, waiting for the address. I think it was like at 2 a.m. for me or something or 1.30. Um, so I stayed up and, you know, I was just watching the address, sort of live tweeting and increasingly, you know, his Putin's rhetoric was like really, really aggressive. And, and you could feel that, well, first of all, that address wasn't like a pre-announced kind of multiple days in advance thing. It was like a, you know, like a thing out of nowhere, which meant that, you know, there was some sort of sense of urgency, something's happening. And they also, a few days before that, you know, recognized, quote unquote, you know, these proxy so-called republics in Donbass. So, you know, everyone was expecting that, you know, something's going to come. Switching this address and then he announces, you know, a special military operation. And the, the craziest thing for me maybe was the fact that I, I'm sitting there looking at our newsroom chat and I see my colleagues just writing one word, war, you know, like one colleague, Ilya, and then Hilosha, Alexei, another colleague of mine, they just write war. And, and we're all just kind of sitting there for maybe like 15 seconds being like, what the fuck just happened? It was, it was, it was the weirdest thing. Um, and then, of course, for like a few minutes, you're just, you know, in complete, complete shock because, first of all, you have no idea what's going to happen. But then it got even worse um, when, you know, people started hearing explosions around the entire country. And then you're really like, what the hell is going on, right? Because it could be anything, right? It could be, it could be really bad. It could be just sort of, you know, a few explosions here and there to freak us out. You have no idea. You really have no idea what's happening. Um, so, you know, you, we're sitting there trying to wrap our head around, like, what is going on? Um, and, you know, I, I, I quickly understand that, like, okay, even though I, I wasn't a full, like, a full-time staff member at the time, obviously none of that matter anymore because, you know, we're all one team. So everyone who had all sorts of different schedules, different different responsibilities, we all came together immediately and were like, okay, we're all awake. 
everyone's on board, like, you know, editors, like, what do you need us to do? So we just all kind of dropped whatever we were doing before. Um, and, you know, I, I realized that, you know, my colleagues are sitting there mostly in Kiev, who literally, you know, could be in deadly danger right now. So, of course, you know, I, I have this huge privilege of being in safety. So, you know, I have to really put in as much effort as I, as I can to kind of cover the news. So we immediately, you know, started doing the um, the live feed, uh, which is how our audience grew so, so quickly. Um, and so basically for the next like, maybe two days, I slept for maybe like an hour and a half. <laughs> like I obviously didn't go to university next day. I, I just like dropped everything and I basically drank a lot of Coca-Cola and just like wrote news <laughs> for 48 hours and, you know, like trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and then... Uh, after that, I just like packed up and um, left to stay with uh, two of my girlfriends who are also Ukrainians. Um, and we were all in that kind of state of what the hell is going on, you know, trying to figure out what's happening. And in maybe like two days after that, we all were like, how about we just go to Krakow? <laughs> so we all just fly to Krakow <laughs> because all of us were like, well, we can just sit here in Paris, like, you know, walking around eating baguettes presenting like nothing's happening like obviously we have to you know we have to act somehow and the, the easiest thing that we thought of was like well we have a bunch of family friends in Krakow we have people to stay with so let's just go you know I could report which is what I did I went to the border you know spoke with refugees wrote um, a few stories there and uh, the girls were volunteering you know at refugee centers humanitarian aids distribution points and stuff so that's kind of what happened. And then I basically just emailed the admin of my school being like, hi, um, I have to leave ASAP. <laughs> I can I have all of my classes in line and stuff. And for a while, they tried to tell me that we urge you to return to safety, um, etc. They were like horrified when I told them I was in Lviv. Like I take classes and people were literally like, are you under bombs right now? Like, are you in immediate grave danger? Like everyone is freaking out so badly because they had no idea like how to react. But basically, yeah, from, from like a week into the war, I just packed up like moved out of the apartment I was renting, you know, kind of re readjusted my whole life to, you know, moving back to Ukraine. And then I stayed in Lviv for a little bit. And then eventually, you know, when the Kiev situation got better and Russians retreated uh, from the Kiev Oblast, I uh, went back to Kiev, which is where I am now, right? Two minutes from the Golden Gate. So, so that's tell us, briefly. So tell us a little bit about you. Uh, somebody listening to this would have the impression that you're currently a student or you were at the, in February a student in Paris, but... You're also a, a reporter for the Kiev Independent. What's your history and, uh, you know, prior to, uh, to uh, the war or the, the current phase of the war? Yeah, so um, I, I, a lot of people freak out when they learn this uh, for, for a while when my, when my audience grew very quickly. Um, people, obviously people had no idea what my name, like what my age is or who I am, you know, as, as, a, as a person. They just followed me for news about Ukraine. And then randomly, you know, it would start popping up that I'm actually 21 or was 20 at the time when the war began. And everyone was like, what the hell? But yeah, so basically I'm right now 21. I just finished my third year of bachelor's. I'm, I'm just doing political science like most of us. Um, and uh, yeah, I started working. Back at the gift post, I don't know how much the audience understands what happened there, but you guys can look yeah, it so, up. so give, give people the history because I think most people don't know the history of the yeah. and its relationship to the Cuban post. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the Cuban Independent is um, we're all the newsroom that in the past was the Kiev post, and then a few months ago, um, actually more than a few months ago, so last November, I think it was November eighth. When the Kiev Post was, you know, 11, kicking, everything was okay. Uh, I was working there. I started, I, I've worked there for around two years at the time, back in November. We were all fired on the spot 
without notice one day um, because uh, for a few months prior to that, they were, you know, kind of uh, back and forth fighting um, between the newsroom and uh, the owner and, uh, you know, the leadership sort of um, because there were a lot of problems with uh, the fact that our owner, who is a, not our owner anymore, but post, the post owner, Anand Kivan, he is a real estate guy who owns a bunch of real estate in Odessa, which, you know, um, is one of Ukraine's most corrupted cities. So if you're a real estate guy there, almost by definition, you know, that you're involved in some shady stuff. Um, so he wasn't a huge fan of the fact that we were critiquing the government. And, and we did that all the time, of course, because... That's just kind of what journalism is. We, we never saw it any other way. We always wrote about any administration, you know, any... We, did, we didn't have presidents who backed us or, you know, something like that. We, we always just wrote the things that were happening. He wasn't a huge fan of that, and um, especially of the fact that we critiqued the general prosecutor or prosecutor general, whatever it is in Ukraine, if you translate it to English. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, um, basically he wanted to install, uh, he wanted to expand uh, the Kiev Post into like Ukrainian slash Russian version, and he wanted to install his own editor to oversee that. And this woman didn't have the best reputation, and it was all sort of really sketchy, you know. It, it, was, it, it looked like he was just trying to install his own puppet in the newsroom to control the narrative, and we didn't agree with that because he went completely behind the newsroom's back, like didn't consult us at all. So for months, we, there were all of these negotiations on, you know, the fact that, no, you know, there has to be a hiring process here. You can bring in this random person who we've never seen and tell her that she's not working the longest. Like, that's not fair. So eventually, after months and months, um, it, all, it all ended up with the entire newsroom being fired. And, of course, it was a huge shock for us because the Gift Post is this legendary Ukrainian, you know, newspaper. It was the only English newspaper in the country. I think it was the first one as well. It has this long history of over 20 years. Um, and um, we, we realized that, you know, especially as the troops were building up the border simultaneously, I mean, it was really the worst time for Ukraine to not have an English language newspaper because we were basically the window into the outside world, you know. So um, we basically, the entire, the entire newsroom stayed together and within a few weeks, Within a matter of days, actually, we began this public campaign of explaining to our audience like what happened, and we started own, our own media, and that's basically how the Kiev Independent is born. I mean, the Kiev Independent is is a startup, and we have this huge audience, but we have a tiny newsroom of you know, like roughly I think 25, 30 people, which which is very small <laughs> compared but, to other but you know. Um, the principal English language Ukrainian news source, I think, for a lot of people in the West, and a a bunch of people. Of including you, but also Ilya, uh, have, I, I don't know, I mean, you have probably 700,000 Twitter followers at this point, um, mm -hmm. uh, probably the vast majority of whom don't know that you're 21. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I can't think of a, of a Ukrainian North news source that has more credibility in the West. It's kind of amazing that it's, you know, six months old. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is amazing. We, it, it like when the war began and we started seeing our numbers go up. Um, we were all like completely freaking out and in shock. Um, but you know, it, it's a huge responsibility, but also a huge honor because you know, as you said, we are the primary news source and we have this huge privilege of you know telling people stories and um, showing people you know the truth about what's happening and. The fact that we also have such a huge audience means that we actually have some leverage, you know. So the NYT writes something completely terrible, misinterpreting the war in Ukraine and calling for us to kind of, you know, stop caring and go focus on domestic interest rates. We can actually, you know, write something that will counter that 
directly and have, you know, kind of this public discussion, you know, with such giants as the NYT. Um, so, so that's awesome, I think, um, because we, we also had this joke, uh, we brought in a pad about how the U.S. should kind of, you know, do the whole land lease thing that was happening a few weeks or months ago. And we were just saying how, you know, they should sign it, they should pass it, they should give us all the weapons we want. And then like the day after we published the all pad, the Senate votes for it. And we were joking that like, see, the senators read the game independent, which uh, is the leave. Uh, we're not actually saying that it happened because of us. But th- this is kind of the, 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 the jokes that we make that, you know, we have such a huge audience that we can actually see it making an impact and it's amazing. So uh, your English is impeccable and, uh, and Thank you. completely idiomatic. Um, uh, I'm curious, uh, how, did you, how did you come to uh, uh, have English that allows you to do professionally journalism in English? Um, yeah, that actually circles back to your previous question, which I didn't really answer. Um, so when I was 15, I uh, moved to Canada to go to boarding school. So I finished grade nine in Kiev. And then for grade 10, 11, 12, I was in Canada. Then I, uh, after graduating, I started um, doing my bachelor's at UBC there as well in British Columbia, the University of British Columbia. And then, you know, when COVID hit, I just finished my first year of bachelor's and I had to move back to Kiev because I went online and there was just no reason to you know, stay there if I could just be home and study in line. So that's sort of what happened. I've been in the Western education system quite a while. And um, I've also been learning English my whole time. Like when I went to Canada, I already knew sort of the entirety of English as, as far as, you know, grammar goes, for example. I, I only had still, you know, like a really bad accent and maybe not that good of a vocabulary. But um, yeah, so English has always been a part of my life. Um, and then when I went there, of course, when you live there, especially at such an age of when, like at 15, you know, I really sort of like I grew up in Ukraine, but also in a way I grew up in Canada, like the growing up in that kind of liberal values system really, really shaped me into who I am today because those years, you know, 15, 16, 17, that's when you actually become someone. <laughs> that's right. when you develop your, your and, main core belief system. Level, we're all from where we went to high school. Exactly, um, exactly. You know, I, it's, uh, it, it's very true, even if you're, even if you're, even if at every other level it's not true, we all mm-hmm. we do think of ourselves at some level as from wherever we lived when we were 16. Um, you mentioned uh, the key of independence battle with the New York Times, uh, which, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of us uh, in the United States were quite shocked by that editorial um, and followed with some interest the degree of uh, the degree of consternation and anger that it generated among Ukrainians. Um, I'm curious how you understand, uh, in light of the weird mixed messages that Ukraine has received from Western intellectual elites, on the one hand, you have the quite full-throated support of the Biden administration and the president himself, uh, however belatedly some of that support may have arrived, you have a, a a remarkable degree of bipartisanship among Americans who have not traditionally over the last few years been very bipartisan with respect to Ukraine. After all, Ukraine was the source of the original impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, On the other hand, you do have these voices on the left and right. uh, And in the New York Times' case, a a very venerable and respectable voice 
that is, uh, you know, sort of overtly arguing for U.S. pressure on Ukraine to uh, give up territory and cede, uh, make sort of major concessions uh, to Russia. How do you understand the way the way the U.S. debate is operating? How does it look to you from Kiev? The answer is I don't really understand it <laughs> because, um, well, of course, I have all sorts of thoughts and, and, and I'll share them in a second. But it is true that, you know, of course, you know, everything political is very contextual. So kind of, for example, the fact that I am personally, you know, because of ideological reasons, I'm as far from, you know, the Republican Party and Republican values as possible. But in the run-up to the war, they were very active with supporting Ukraine. Um, they were very active with pressure, like pressuring for, you know, sanctions. They were very active about Nord Stream 2, etc. Sort of the same with Boris Johnson as well. I mean, I hate the guy, but if anything, they've been doing sort of not that badly when it comes to Ukraine. So you kind of have to play this double game when it comes to, you know, your opinions on this. And the same thing with, you know, the American left. Um, I'm more closer to them ideologically, but a lot of them have just been either completely silent or you know, just said have completely ludicrous things, you know, with those, those, those peacemakers and those people who are, you know, we're all for peace and negotiations and, you know, let's come to the table and whatever, all of the other crap that doesn't actually, you know, solve the issue on the ground, um, evidently, as we've tried. Um, so there's all sorts of confusion for me on a personal level um, about, you know, which side supports what and how to take that in. But the whole NYT thing, um, and also anyone who advocates for concessions of territory, I, and I, I, I talked about this a lot, you know, on the podcast, but also, you know, on Twitter and, you know, with my friends and with my colleagues. Something that I really, really understood deeply uh, when the war began um, is that there is this just fundamental gap between someone who's gone through something like this, between someone who's gone through occupation, through war, and between someone who hasn't. And I personally think there is absolutely no way to bridge that gap. You can sort of maybe narrow it, you know, like you can read books, you can travel, you can have friends who've done that and they tell you stories and et cetera, et cetera. But it's still not the same. Like, it's, and it, it, it's just true. It just will never be. And it's a problem because the, the absolute majority of people who make decisions, you know, in the world at large and especially in the West and in America, they're, they're that group that has no idea what we're actually going through. So they're sitting, you know, and this also goes for academics as well. Um, so, you know, they're sitting there in their ivory towers or in Washington, kind of theorizing about kind of doing a, you know, cost benefit analysis of, you know, how to minimize these casualties, like what to do, how do we negotiate with Putin when, you know, on the ground, the answer for Ukrainians and for Ukraine is extremely simple. You know, we just have to defeat them. Like we are not at all considering, you know, which city should we give to Russia? Should it be Kharkiv or should it be Donetsk or should it be Kherson, which is where I'm from, by the way. I was born in Kherson and my entire family comes from Kherson. And I spent a lot of time there too when I was a kid. But um, yeah, so I think it's a problem of this just kind of gap of understanding because as Ukrainians have been you know, saying publicly, like can any American senator or any just American or European imagine having those discussions of like, which part of France you know, should we give to Germany or which part of, should we just, should we just give up Florida or Texas? Like, which one do we really not care about as much? Like, no one can imagine that. I mean, if it happened to the U.S., yeah, I mean, we know how U.S. reacts when there is even a perceived threat that's not even real, you know, like if, if this was about the U.S., they, they, were, they would be acting completely differently. But there's still this sort of kind of mystical approach to Putin and Russia as this kind of grand, huge 
power that's, you know, even if it fails a little bit in these battles, like it's still way too strong for us to tackle, you know, and that's kind of what I got from the NYT article as well. You know, that, that's what they were saying a lot that, you know, Putin is still strong and Russia is still Russian, has this grand big military. But like, where is that military? I mean, if you read any any analysis on the war and if, if you look at simply if you look at maps, you know, like the maps of the territory that they've not really controlled, but, you know, kind of occupied briefly in the last few months with now Ukrainian counteroffensives, they beat all the odds and they look extremely, you know, just mind blowing that our army is doing that. But they are doing that. And it's because that if you guys back us, uh, you guys meaning the West, if you back us enough, we can actually push them out. Like we can actually win this war and we will win this war because there's no other way, you know, if we don't win this war, then there will not be a Ukraine at, at all, you know, because it's an existential threat to us, obviously. Um, so, well, yeah, I think so. I think the one problem is, you know, there's this just gap between someone who really understands what war looks like and what foreign occupation looks like and someone who doesn't. But also this sort of kind of persistent historical image of Russia and Putin as these like kind of, you know, un- unbeatable, un- you know, unattackable kind of, I don't even know, yeah, entity. And I, I think there's also a, um, a degree to which the Russian narrative about Ukraine has actually seeped into a lot of Western understanding of what Ukraine is. It may be less true in Canada, where there's just this very large Ukrainian emigre population. But I mean, I when I was in university and studied Russian, uh, I don't think I understood that there was a separate Ukrainian language. Uh, I, you know, it wasn't. You know, we used Soviet textbooks and. The the idea that these uh, these I, I definitely knew that the Baltics were were genuinely separate uh, countries that had been absorbed. But you know the, the idea of a sort of East Slavic pan Russian world was just the vapor that we all lived in, and and I and I think that that actually persists in the way in the way. It's, people don't buy that Ukraine is not a real country the way Putin claims. But, you know, Ann Applebaum did have to write an article in The Atlantic that said the headline of which is it's a real country. Right. She has to defend <laughs> the idea that it's a real country. What would we do without Ann Applebaum? I really don't know. <laughs> Ann was my, was my next door neighbor at the Washington Post editorial page for a number of years. And, and uh, we, we, we sat next to each other. Um, but, you know, so but the fact that, you know, Anne had to write that uh, an article in defense of the idea that it's a real country implies that there's still some doubt in a lot of people's mind about that. Nobody writes that. Of, nobody has to write about Poland. It's a real country. Right. And I think I think there's just a degree to which Russian imperial and Soviet propaganda over a very, very long period of time has just kind of worked. Yeah, that's, yeah, you that correctly. It's, it, it's, it's scary to see those discussions, you know, because for the longest time, you know, when I, when I went to Canada at 15, I, I constantly would get questions about, you know, oh, you're from Ukraine. That's that's somewhere near Russia, right? Or is that like a Russian republic or like Russian, you know, part of Russia somehow? And you know, when I when I would say, you know, they'd be like, "What languages do you speak?" And I'd say Ukrainian and Russian. And people would be like, "Wow, Ukrainian is you guys have a separate language." 
And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then you'd have to explain why do you also speak Russian? And it's all very confusing. And, you know, but um, people definitely still have those discussions. And uh, of course, it's crazy to me, right? Because Ukraine, like Ukraine and Russia, of course, have a lot of shared history, but they're also extremely different. Like, if you do some sort of political analysis of, you know, the way our societies developed, the way our culture developed, you know, that, that development of Russia as a state versus Ukraine as a state are two completely, like, not, not separate processes, but just very different processes in how, in how they unfolded on a human level, right? Because the entire history of Ukraine is just surviving against this huge, oppressive neighbor. That's literally our entire history. And there were a bunch of other neighbors that tried, you know, getting some more land, but they weren't as aggressive as Russia. But, you know, literally our entire history is, you know, our intelligentsia being killed, uh, our people being repressed, and us trying and trying and trying for hundreds of years to assert our Ukrainianness and us trying to assert that Ukraine is an independent state and we want to be independent and we do not want to be pro-Russian. We have our own language. Uh, we have our own, you know, history, our own culture. But to this day, we still have to assert these things. And, you know, in, in a way, I mean, it's, it's wrong to say that I'm grateful, but at least the one sort of you know, less horrible thing that came out of this whole full-scale war situation is that finally people are, are, are caring more and we are asserting this Ukrainianness more than ever and we're using all of this attention that we have to assert it, which is good, right? Because this spotlight is on us and we can finally be like, hey, here is 10 ways in which we're not actually brotherly nations, you know? I'm not sure if Macron is seeing that, probably not, evidently, but, you know, we've been trying our best to assert... Um, well Nowhere has that come through more clearly than in the area of informational culture and political culture, right? That, yeah. that people, you know, to a English speaking ear, most people cannot hear the difference between differences between Russian and Ukrainian. It's right? huge, actually. Russians can't understand us. No, like, no, no. I, no. I, 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 look, I, I have some basic Russian. I cannot understand Ukrainian at all. Um, so <laughs> Here I'm, you go. But, but, I'm, but I'm just saying... That the um, that when you know your when your average American hears people speaking Ukrainian who doesn't speak Ukrainian or Russian, that person will not be able to tell the difference between the the, the sound of the languages to a Western ear is going to be very similar. That said, the the political culture the 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 the, 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 the so if the if the cultural differences are going to be subtle and hard to explain, the political differences are overt and very easy to explain. You have a, a, a one country that has a, you know, unambiguously democratic uh, government, if somewhat transitional, a, a quite open informational culture, uh, and a, a, a very vibrant civil society. And then you have the other country that is, a, you know, really recognizably slipping into or slipped into a, a kind of very fascist authoritarianism and the difference the political culture differences are just overt and and very naked and apparent and i think i think yeah. really really internalized that yeah the, these differences are um, ex extremely obvious for anyone who pays attention i mean in kiev we have pro lgbt rights raves near the president's office like literally in the courtyard in front of the building there are a bunch of queer people and people who support them dancing you know and having a rave like can you imagine like in russia you get arrested for holding a blank piece of paper yeah in, Ru in russia you know, like <laughs> that too it was called pussy riot and they were all jailed 
Right. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But we we did everything we could to not lead to that. You know, we we like hundreds of people died and now continue dying, so that we are a state that has you know nothing common in terms of political systems with Russia. So yeah, we're we're extremely different, and I keep on saying this to everyone I meet who doesn't understand this. So uh, we're going to go to audience questions uh, in a moment. If you have a question, please uh, request to speak. I uh, I will zap you in. Uh, uh, please keep yourself muted or I will keep you muted until it's your turn. Uh, uh, when I call on you, uh, please frame your question in the form of a question. Uh, I'm really not interested in anybody's monologues, uh, but uh, 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 concise questions are great. Um, and uh, while people are, uh, are requesting, I have one additional question for you myself, which is, uh, to tell us a bit about the podcast. There are, I think, three episodes out now. Uh, what are you and your co-hosts trying to do and what's the uh, what's going to be the, the scope and scale of the project? Yeah, this is actually super exciting for me. Um, so we have uh, on like if you go on a podcasting platform, it shows that it's like number three, but that's because we first released a trailer. So now it counts as three. It's actually the episode. The second episode was just released. So um this project is actually completely a dream come true because I've been obsessed with, um, you know, the idea of making a podcast. I'm a huge podcaster. Like, I listen to podcasts more than I listen to music. Like, it's a daily kind of hours-long thing. Whatever I do, I listen to something. Um, so I've always wanted to, to do one. And the idea of how this came to life is that um, we were all in Krakow, me and two of my girlfriends, Agara and Katarina. Um, and uh, I was just sitting there in a, in a completely dark state of mind, crying. I think Bucha just happened, so it was just a really tough time. And I was just sitting there being like, we talk about all of these issues all the time, you know, about Ukraine and national identity and the war and etc. And then we also have access to all of these amazing experts, you know, so me through my work, but also, you know, Agata, my best friend, my co-host also goes to CNSPO. Stanford does international security at Stanford, so she can get literally any expert I can think of to come to the podcast. So I was thinking, why don't we just do this on a larger scale, you know, and, and bring some Ukrainian have, voices. Katarina, by the way, has been a guest on... Uh on uh, Live from Ukraine. And if you're interested in that, sh uh, that episode, uh, it's on the podcast feed, uh, as are all the previous episodes. Sorry, I just had to get that in. Of course, yeah. Um, so basically, yeah, we just, we, we started thinking about how to do this best. And I came to my editor, our chief editor, Ola, and I was just like, hey, you know, we have this idea, I want to do this podcast. And I, and I really thought she isn't going to actually fall for it. I thought I'm going to do this like an independent project because it was like, you know, three young students, like this isn't really, you know, something Wally's going to like, you know, talking about the war. But she completely green-lighted it immediately. She was like, yep, yeah, just tell me, you know, just tell me how much money you need for, for you know, purchasing your equipment and just go do it. And she just Im immediately gave us the green light to do whatever we want and go in any direction we want with it. And it's amazing. We have full creative freedom. You know, we found uh, we found a person to, you know, actually do the mixing for us, you know, the audio. Um, and yeah, it, it's been amazing. Our next episode, we just did an episode about Azov Stal. So we spoke with John Spencer, an amazing expert of um, urban warfare studies. Um, so check that out. I also spoke to two women. One is a wife and another one is a girlfriend of two Azov Stal defenders who are now in Russian captivity. We did that episode, and then the next one is going to be, you guys are getting some really secretive info here. Um, the next episode that's going to be out next Wednesday is going to be about a Ukrainian from Kiev who's originally from Mariupol and whose whole family lived in Mariupol. And when the war began, um, after Mariupol was already under blockade, he actually drove from Kiev to Mariupol 
to evacuate his family. And he managed miraculously to do that. So we had a very long sit down with him and we're going to share his story next week. Uh, next week. So um, I'm super excited. So you guys should check us out and let us know how we can be better for you as well, because this is our first time either of us are doing a podcast. So we're still trying to figure it out, but hopefully, hopefully people like it. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I've, as I say, I have not listened to the second episode yet, but I have listened to the first episode and uh, it's, it's a super compelling piece of work. And uh, thank you. About it. All right. Let's uh, hear from the audience. Uh, Eric Sununas. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, I just saw Eric yesterday, uh, and here he is uh, on live from Ukraine. Ben, thank you very much for having me. <clears throat> I'm a long-time follower, follower um, big fan of your work. I was in Kiev um, in the month of May and um, was just astonished at the amount of civic solidarity in Ukraine. Um, but the reality is, is that while Lend-Lease is $40 billion, you know, is the, the way that they talk about it is $40 billion, the, the amount of money going to Ukraine is less. And in fact, by certain calculations, based on the, the deficit that the Ukrainian government is running because the Russian, basically Russia strangling uh, Ukraine, is that we're talking Lend-Lease as structured is about three or four months of support um, for the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian cause. Uh, based on your reporting, what's your biggest concern? Um, is it the military? You know, is it the, the, the fight on the ground? Is it um, the fact that in three or four months, if there's not more Western support, um, we could be short, you know, Ukraine could be short on, on pay for soldiers and, and others. What are your greatest concerns over the next few months? Thank you um, for your question. Well, my biggest concern, and it, it, it's a concern and sort of a conundrum I have in my head which is, I, I keep on trying to understand how is it possible that the Western governments are still having discussions on the kind of weapons that are, uh, that, that, that are okay to be shipped to Ukraine, you know, after, after Bucha, after Irpin, after Mariupol, after Kharkiv, after Kherson, you know, after all, after all of these atrocities being revealed, we're still talking about, you know, whether this one weapon is just going to, you know, freak Putin out just a little bit too much for us to ship it, you know. Like, those discussions are ridiculous to me. And as we've written in our op-eds and just on social media in general, and as we've called for, Ukraine needs all of the weapons it asks for. It's as simple as that. I don't think there should be any discussions. Um, and moreover, can someone explain to me, like, I'm sure this audience is full of smart people. What is an inherently defensive weapon? Like, I've been trying, I've been on other podcasts where I've asked the host this question. We've been trying to figure it out, and no one can give me an answer. Like, I can't think of, an, of a single weapon that is inherently defensive in a way that it can't be used defensively. So it's like all of these discussions are just diplomatic crap, uh, you know, to kind of try to negotiate and, and uh, uh, as the recent uh, news show, uh, not, what is it, not humiliate Putin. So all of this is just ridiculous to me. And I think that's my biggest concern because we do rely on Western support quite heavily in terms of military. And it, it makes a huge difference in the way the, the war uh, goes. So, you know, if, if none of this was here, if none of these weapons were here, we'd be seeing a completely different picture and it would be much more dire, even though our soldiers are amazing and, and brave and, you know, beat all the odds with how they're fighting. So, yeah, I think um, that's my biggest concern, the fact that we're still having discussions on what's going to humiliate Putin just a little bit too much as opposed to what's actually going to help Ukraine win this war. Nevada D, the floor is yours. I just wanted to thank you for coming out in this space. And my question is, after uh, you had mentioned that you went to college in Canada, 
um, to get, and you got your bachelor's degree. Do you plan on going back after the war is over to finish your studies? Uh, yes, I, I just finished my third year, so I still have a fourth year to go. So I'm actually flying to the States um, for another program that I'm doing at the Institute for the Study of War for two weeks um, in August. And then after that, I'm going to be off to Vancouver for my fourth year. And then after that, I'm probably I'm going to be back in Paris for my master's. So I'm, 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 I'm a very academia-minded person. So I, I actually plan to do a master's and possibly a PhD, and um, it's it's a big dream of mine to kind of bridge the two fields together. You know, I I want to be the kind of journalist who actually knows what they're writing about, as opposed to just being parachuted somewhere, not knowing the history, not knowing the language, the culture. So, um, yep, that's kind of my goal. Ian Mack, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Wittes, and thank you, Ms. Lapatina, for being here today. I want to call out your... Um, other group at Kids of War UA that is uh, has uh, like I think it's NFTs uh, of children's drawings from Ukraine and um, it is both spectacular and tragic. So everybody take a look at that. Um, also, I know you've been very busy, but have you been able to actually set up any kind of fundraising for your mom's um, process of taking like baskets to people in her? Thanks so much. Of course, we raised a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> I, I I posted that tweet about because my mom, you know, she really needed a diesel car because her car is this like really fancy car that my dad got for her back in the day, and it you know it just eats way too much fuel and it was unsustainable for the amount of work and trips that she was taking. So, and also we have like no fuel here. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's a big problem with gas, as you probably have seen in the news. So we we were aiming to eventually raise like five thousand, and we ended up raising like over thirty thousand in like a day which is just completely mind-blowing to me. Like, I, like I, I, you know, I all I did, well, okay, f to be fair, for months I would post about my mom. Genuinely, the, guys, this wasn't like a marketing strategy or something. I, I She's just amazing. So I, I wanted to share with you the amazing work that she's doing. But um, I, she is just thrilled and she keeps on, you know, sending me all of these photos, um, you know, of kids and of families to whom she's shipping all sorts of humanitarian aid supplies. She started sending insulin to Kharkiv which is incredible. I, I mean, and it's actually not as difficult as you'd think. You literally, because we, our post offices work now, which is also amazing on its own. So you can actually just go to the post office and ship stuff to Kharkiv and someone will pick it up. So she's been doing a lot of that and she got the car that she wanted. She got a bigger one. So, you know, now we can transport even more aid. And she's just super excited um, to spend all that money. And I'm going to be sharing all of that uh, with you guys as well, the photos. Daniel Fuchs, the floor is yours. Uh, thank okay. you very much. It's been very interesting. Uh, uh, one question that I have is, um, I remember the speech of uh, President Zelensky where he said something along the lines of it's not only about after the war, you know, rebuilding the buildings, but building a new country, something to that effect. And I was wondering what you would see as the longer term challenges of Ukraine, maybe also opportunities, uh, you know, given, given a positive outcome of the war that, that we all hope for. This is a great question. Um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, actually, um, because that's one of the scariest things, sort of like, what, what the hell are we going to do with all of this mess after it's over and after we win? Um, something that's extremely important to me and close to my heart is um, just kind of using 
and uh, consolidating all of this energy that we have, you know, with so many people in Ukraine, you know, trying to switch from Russian to Ukrainian and effectively doing doing so, you know, people interacting more with Ukrainian culture. You know, when the war just began, we had all these photos of people reading um, Ukrainian history books, like Ukrainians reading Ukrainian history books, like in cafes and stuff, just trying to understand, like, what the hell is going on and, like, what is this history that we have? Um, so we need, I think, one of the most important things, other than, of course, the, the physical rebuilding uh, of cities, um, is uh, consolidating of, on all of this interest that we have and really give Ukrainians an opportunity to interact effectively with their culture and with their history and learn it more and learn it better and le- not learn it in the way that, you know, the Soviet education system has been trying to teach us that in, in Ukraine, unfortunately, because we have a, a, a very vibrant and active civil society that's... I'd say maybe this is just my information bubble, but mainly young generation, you know, maybe uh, people my age, people, you know, from my age to 30, 35, uh, who are this country's next generation? It's an astonishing age step function, uh, (laughs) you know, like between your generation of Ukrainians and the generation that's my age is just an awesome difference. Okay, maybe, maybe I exaggerated a little bit. (laughs) But I was just uh, trying to expand my point. Yeah, no, fact- no, I don't think you're exaggerating it at all. I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's a stunning, you know, uh, it's a stunning change that's happened in Ukraine civil society over one generation. After, especially after my done. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, um, I interrupted you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I think we just have to use all of this uh, kind of. Um, effort and uh, attention that our history and our culture is getting uh, and we have to continue pushing it you know um, we have to have more people speak Ukrainian we have to have more people just wear Vishavankas or traditional dress just on a daily basis is normal and not just once a year on national Vishavanka day you know we have we need to have more kids who go to Ukrainian museums who know history who are going to pass it on to their to, to, to their children as well. I think this is extremely important and, you know, because if you don't have, if you don't have a strong national identity, you're, you're not secure by definition. National, like your national identity and your cultural identity is, uh, you know, at the, at the very core of any country's security, but especially in Ukraine and especially in the dynamic that we have with Russia, you know. Of course, they're weaponizing culture and history and language to the, to the fullest of their ability. So um, I think that's extremely important. Prakash Kumar, the floor is yours. Yeah, hi, Anastasia, uh, love, you know, uh, love and peace from India. Uh, I just follow you and went through your post and all, watching the crisis you all are going through. So my question is, when this war will end, when this crisis will going to uh, end, and when the peace will come out? If only I knew the answer to that question, it would be lovely. But um, my hope is that they're going to wrap it up by next winter, <laughs> because I think that that's sort of broadly what I've seen various experts say, but I mean, again, all of these estimations are as, as good as the estimations that Kiev is going to fall within three days. So, um, but I, looking at how the Russian military is doing for all, you know, they're really running out of steam. So it's, I think I've seen that sort of like by the end of summer, maybe the hot phase of the war is going to be over. It's difficult to say, but hopefully, you know, my only, only sacred hope is that this doesn't last for, you know, another year or something like that would be that, that, that's the worst case outcome for me, you know, having a prolonged sort of, you know, um, conflict that keeps on being on, you know, our potential because we have, we have so many things to do in this country. We have so many, so many ways in which we're going to get better uh, after the war. So I just really want this to be over as soon as possible um, and uh, so we can get to that good work that we have to do. 
Bunyamin uh, Yildiz, the floor is yours. You have to unmute yourself, sir. All right, uh, we're gonna move on. Um, uh, we have a question from Ukraine Freedom 5. The floor is yours. Oh, we're having that problem now again, guys, where people are trolling us by pretending to have questions and then not really having them. You know, I just want to say, uh, uh, if you do this, uh, I'm never bringing you on again. So, you know, people develop reputations in spaces. And once you've done that to me once, you never get called on again. Um, all right, just warning you. Nevada D, however, has a very good reputation uh, with me and gets to ask another question. Uh, yes, I was um, just on the rebuilding. Has any talk been uh, around the Ukraine areas of building back green? To be fair, I maybe this is just this is just maybe this is just my personal problem of not catching that in the news or something, but. I don't I don't think I remember any particular discussions on that specifically. I mean, of, of course, we we're all talking about the fact that, you know, we're not going to rebuild in the things in the way that they were before the war. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Of course, we're going to rebuild back better um, and more progressive and European and so forth. But I don't think there has been a, a, a discussion, a worthwhile discussion about, you know, specifically rebuilding green and, you know, the green energy, though it is extremely important. I actually love that you brought it up. It's extremely, extremely important, um, um, especially, you know, with the way that our energy sector is structured right now. We're really, really behind our European allies. Um, so I think it's something that really must be addressed. And I think that it's something that will be addressed because I think that that inevitably will be a part of the conversation after the war. Because, we have, as I said, we have a very strong civil society and a big part of that civil society is actually the, you know, the, the environmentalists who, you know, I've also written many stories about, spoken to those people um, and uh, at the same time as well, you, the war itself has a huge impact on environment itself. So I think not addressing that is going to be impossible, right? Because to rebuild in any way, even if we're talking about urban structures, if we're talking about just rebuilding cities, you, 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 you must address the effect that that has on the environment and you must address green energy um, and the ways in which we can transfer to that. So what hopefully... The, what are the areas when you say we're not going to build back the way it was? Um, I, I mean, I know there are railroad gauge issues, for example, that where where U Ukrainian railroads are on uh, are, are on old Russian gauges rather than on uh, uh, the gauges that are, are you know, exist in, in, the, in a lot of the rest of Europe. But what are the areas where when you build, rebuild, you really have opportunities to build in a qualitatively different way that you were referring to? Well, I actually meant literally everywhere. <laughs> Because, I mean, Ukraine is just notoriously famous for terrible or just a complete lack of urban planning. We had this huge issue in Kiev, for example. You know, we, we have this huge kind of ongoing constant fight between, 
you know, the activists that are trying to save cultural heritage and historical buildings is, you know, rich, corrupt developers who just don't give a crap. So they just, you know, build completely ugly business centers in the middle of Padil, you know, the historical district. So th- these are these are the issues that I'm talking about. But also the fact that, you know, we had so many apartment apartment buildings that, you know, were apartment buildings built during, you know, the Khrushchev era and stuff. You know, we, we don't need that. We can we can we can have beautiful new modernized buildings. We right. can have beautiful new modernized schools, hospitals, etc. Residential architecture really isn't nice. Yep, I mean, of course, there is a part of it that's you know the Soviet modernism that I think um, is is worth keeping, especially considering that there are a lot of Ukrainian artists, you know, architect uh, architects, uh, painters who I- existed, you know, lived through the Soviet times and who contributed to a lot of the things that we see right now in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. So uh, the, that's also a big conversation in Ukraine, uh, or at least what was before the war, that we shouldn't just tear down everything that's Soviet. I mean, there are a lot of contributions here that were actually done by Ukrainians, but they just had no other way below sort of, you know, slightly the party line just to get it out of there. So, um, yeah. Daniel Orfman, you get the last question today. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Anastasia. And when you talk, when you mentioned Padil, that really struck the chord because when I last visited right before the war, everyone was talking about the monster of Padil um, right in the middle that just kind of Yes. building that's not going anywhere. But yep. to my question, my question is this. Um, you've had against being in Canada and interacting with, with the Ukrainian diaspora. Um, and, and I'm wondering what differences you saw between what it meant to be Ukrainian in the diaspora in Canada versus what you grew up with in Ukraine and whether that's changing. Like my, my, my thesis or my assumption would be that it's kind of coming together a bit more, but perhaps not. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, that's actually a very difficult question, and I'm probably going to disappoint you a little bit, but when I was in Canada, I actually did not whatsoever interact with the Ukrainian diaspora, because when I left Ukraine, I, um, this may come as a shock to people, and I'm sure they're going to use it against me in the future as well, but, um, I, I was actually very, like, not at all patriotic, like, I, I, I was 15, I was you know, extremely leftist. And I thought that Ukraine was just the most sexist, most racist and most horrible country on earth because, I mean, of course, I didn't actually see the civil society that was active and defending liberal values. So when I, especially when I had that cultural shock, right, when you're coming from a pretty conservative country and you're going to somewhere like Canada, it's a completely different environment. So that even more solidified my kind of um, detachment from home. People would ask me, like, are you going to return to home? Are you going to come back to Ukraine after you're done studying? And I would laugh in their faces. I'd be like, are you crazy? Of course not. I'm going to live in the U.S. or something. Which is now, to me, all of that is completely crazy. Like, that's the exact opposite way, <laughs> of course. Um, so, yeah, I haven't actually interacted with the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. I have, since the beginning of the war, interacted with a lot of people from the diaspora in Europe, um, naturally, because they've all been very active with, you know, welcoming refugees, etc., and uh, a thing I noticed is that diaspora in general is a, is a concept. It's something that I'd love to study in some way or do some sort of project on exploring this because um, I, I think it's extremely interesting how you have these little patches of Ukrainianness all around the world. And it seems like they're the ones who are fighting for Ukrainian history and culture and values almost even, you know, much more than some people in Ukraine. 
um, and, and that's that's all that's always what I've encountered. Anytime I've encountered the yeah, like a person from the diaspora, they're all always extremely patriotic. You know, they they eat the Ukrainian traditional food nearly every day. They speak usually only Ukrainian, etc. So um, it, it's interesting that the diaspora has always been so active, and it's amazing as well because it's super useful for times of crisis like this. Um, so um, yeah, I. Uh, definitely see myself probably in the future as a part of of that diaspora uh, and i can't wait until i can you know um send my kids to school wearing wishmankas and send them to ukrainian sunday school and stuff um that's gonna be fun uh, but i'm sorry if i didn't give you the answer that you expected probably but <laughs> i definitely like I, I it was actually something that i did consciously i have anyone who was russian or ukrainian speaking when i was in canada in part because they always conglomerated themselves kind of in groups and they barely spoke English. And I thought that's stupid because, you know, you go to a Canadian school and your English is as bad as of someone who is from Zhytomyr, you know, because you don't practice it at all. So I, I, I always, you know, I was like, I, I came here to learn other cultures, not to just go and be in a bubble of mine. So that's sort of what I did. We are going to leave it there. Uh, Nastya Lapatina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been super fun. I've actually never been in a Twitter space with so many questions and so much interaction. So that's very interesting. Well, we try to we try to uh, use the format to do things that we can't do in normal podcasting situations. And yep. back next week, uh, I'm not sure our next guest will be, but as always, you can find the next show announced as it will always be my pinned tweet. This episode, as per all the others, will be on the Live from Ukraine podcast feed. Uh, and so please do join us again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.